Hey, y'all. We made it to the end of the week, so pat yourself on the back. It is Friday, and it's time to round up this week's news. We're here with two of our wonderful contributors, Evan Mintz and Shiam Galleon, to find out what went down in H-Town. Let's get into it. It's Friday, March 10th. I'm Carleon Jones, and here's what Houston's talking about today. Good morning, Shiam and Evan. How are y'all? Good morning. I'm good. Everything is good and beautiful here in the museum district. Mm-hmm. How about you, Evan? I'm doing great. Wonderful to be here. Okay. Let's talk about some news. Evan, what was your biggest story this week? The biggest story this week is the formal launching of the Fair for Houston campaign. Have you guys heard about this? No. no. Tell me what's, what's going on. So the Fair for Houston campaign is taking aim at the Houston-Galveston Area Council, which is this big regional committee of the 13 counties all around Houston. And what they do is they bring down the federal dollars and decide how to distribute it for transportation infrastructure, water infrastructure, other things like that. And, you know, it makes kind of sense. Water doesn't end at the county line. Traffic doesn't end at city limits. Like You want to plan in a regional sense around these things. But it's becoming increasingly clear that Houston is getting screwed. Oh, Lord. We are more than 60% of the regional population. We have less than 20% of the voting share on the committee. Mm. Now, this probably wouldn't matter if everyone was looking at Houston's best interest and really taking our perspective to heart, but they're not. Uh, For example, the whole fight over I-45 is being uh, made worse by the fact that we don't have any leverage to stop it or extract concessions on the HGAC Council, or the nearly $500 million that got sent through the HGAC uh, to help fight uh, flooding and build flood infrastructure, Houston Mm -hmm. got just 2% of it. Or if you were paying attention a little while ago to plans to totally redo Lower Westheimer, expand the sidewalks, make it really walkable, dedicated bus stops, really just make it look nice instead of filled with potholes, that funding would have come through HGAC. HGAC smacked it down. We're not getting it. Everything we want, we're not getting, and this isn't fair, particularly because HGAC relies on Houston. They rely on our population, but not just that. In the larger philosophical sense, everything around Houston relies on us to exist. Our economic Mm -hmm. engine and our hospitals and in our ports and in our research and in everything we do. You know, people aren't here for Liberty County. They're not here for Montgomery County. They're here for the city of Houston. And it's about time we got a little damn respect. So Mm -hmm. what this initiative is doing is getting signatures to put on the ballot a vote mandating that the HGAC have proportional representation so that Houston's vote matters and we can actually get the federal dollars we need to be a successful, thriving city. Do you know where the money is actually going to, like which cities they're picking to shell the money out to? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't. I would really need to start digging into that. But the guys over at Fair for Houston can go to fairforhouston.com, break down Mm -hmm. a lot of the numbers. So I'd recommend going there, checking it out. Okay. Now, I was reading a book not too long ago about George Mitchell and the founding of the Woodlands. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that stood out to me is that he had this idea that they'd start the Woodlands and then eventually it'd be annexed by the city of Houston. Because the Woodlands wouldn't exist, there'd be no reason for it if it weren't for all of the things in the city of Houston. And Mm -hmm. that sort of philosophy, I guess, is left to the past. It's left to idealists. People don't get it anymore. Yeah, definitely. It's like Houston is so huge. I think people kind of feel like we don't need some of the stuff that we actually do need just because Mm -hmm. we are so well functioning in a way. Um, But yeah, that's that's super interesting. 
Oh, yeah. No, you feel a little bit like Copernicus yelling at people like the sun is in the middle and everything else orbits <laughs> around it. Not the other way around. Like mm-hmm. Houston is in the middle. Everything else orbits around us. And the governmental bodies need to reflect that. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. What about you, Sheehan? What was your biggest story? I'm kind of nervous to even say this because maybe by saying it, I will make the thing happen. But basically, at any point this week or in the coming days, the Texas Education Agency is like ready to pounce to take over HISD. Um, And as Mm -hmm. I was reading about this, I started feeling kind of tense and like, whoa, this is this is wild. Like, how is this even possible? But just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, the Texas Education Agency is like saying that that they need to take over HISD because one high school isn't um, up to standards. And so there is this like long history. I think it's been done a few dozen times where the state has come in and been like, oh, you're not doing a good job locally. So we're going to take over the entire school district. Mm -hmm. HISD is by far the largest school district in Texas. And it's just wild because there's a lot of people pushing back against this. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the points from advocates are like that HISD has actually made improvements and it's by some measures is better than Dallas ISD. So to come in and say, oh, we need to shut down the whole operation because one school is still working on, on improving itself um, is overreaching. And it is extremely alarming because I I mean, I believe edu- public education is the bedrock of democracy. So for the state to come in and be like, oh, whoops, uh, you don't get to have local control over the school district is extremely alarming. Yeah, this is interesting because we touched on this last week and it's like, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing at this point. And the reason why I say that is because there's teachers that are happy about this. They want some organization, you know, they want some like, you know, this is what we do, this is how we do it type of feel instead of the disorganized things that they go through right now. So it's kind of interesting to see like that teachers are happy about this, but then a lot of the people in um, the local spectrum are kind of just like, oh, what the heck is going on, you know? Oh yeah, you know, it can be two things. It can be that HISD really needs some better management and also that as a school district goes, it has a B rating that the mm-hmm. takeover is based on two things that are in the past now, failing schools that are no longer failing and mm-hmm. corruption on the board where several board members lost their reelections. Mm-hmm. So how long in the past can you go to justify a state takeover of a school district? But also, I want to know, as the state starts contemplating, say, voucher programs, you know, are you going to see the state take over like bad parents who do a bad job at homeschooling or private mm-hmm. schools that have failing outcomes? Like, why is it that all of this scrutiny is put on, say, the Houston school district and not every single other school district, every single other school? And that is where it feels political. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, because just like you said, if it's if you're basing it off of things that have pretty much been fixed. And especially if it's based off of one high school, it kind of just sounds absurd. It sounds targeted in a way. So I guess we just have to see what happens. And if they actually go through with this soon, it's going to be a story that's like developing and that we're going to definitely be watching. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's all about Wheatley High School. But I, I raised the question of whether this should have us 
rethinking about how the board is structured because right now mm-hmm. it's all separate districts you know the board members get elected some from separate districts but mm-hmm. it's not like it's a legislative body where each one of them can pass bills or bring money down to the districts they're supposed to be more like a board of directors on a company holding the superintendent accountable so mm-hmm. maybe just this divisiveness that you see on the board the tension you see on the board is because people are tr- trying to represent their distinct interests while instead of looking at a big picture view of HISD. Maybe we need some at-large seats. Maybe we mm. need to rethink how these members are elected. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that could possibly stop them to be like, hey, we decided not to move forward with, forward with this, or do y'all think it's actually going to go through? So on Monday, um, uh, Texas Senator John Whitmire, who's also a Houston mayoral candidate, um, along with Senators Boris Miles and Carol Alvarado introduced Senate Bill 1662. Mm-hmm. And this bill gives TEA different options or like different action routes to take so that the option isn't like uh, just leave local control like totally or take over the entire thing so that they have options like giving a public notice organizing hearings with board members, ordering the district to create a student improvement plan, appointing a conservator, appointing an agency monitor. So I think that this is, this sounds pretty smart and uh, not like it's a targeted political thing to give an agency options on, on how to do its job. Mm-hmm. Now that's true. And it's my understanding too, that the TEA can always just have some type of vague oversight over the board and keep things in place. But I do think that the legislator needs to look back at this bill that allows this to happen, which was promoted by Harold Dutton, you know, Houston rep. They can put a gun to the head of an entire school district over one failing school. Maybe it Mm -hmm. makes sense for smaller school districts, but for something as huge as HISD, why should your top schools like Carnegie, like HSPVA suddenly be thrown into chaos because of one other school that's unrelated to the work they do. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. Okay, so we'll keep watching that one for sure. Um, my biggest story was that five women have filed a lawsuit against Texas over the abortion ban, and I'm here for it. Um, the lawsuit was filed on Monday in state courts, and basically they're asking for clarification on the abortion law that's set in Texas, which is one of the strictest laws in the country. Um, basically, they feel that the law is creating confusion among doctors because these women were all denied abortions, even though they had either some illness themselves or their child that they were carrying had an illness. Um, one woman like got so bad to the point that she had to get blood poisoning before they provided her with an abortion. The other four had to go to different states to get um, abortions done because they were literally sick or the baby was really sick. And doctors are pretty much just terrified of facing like legal repercussions because the law is so vague. It basically just says, You can't provide an abortion unless it is a life-threatening thing to the woman. And so a lot of people are kind of like, you know, what what are we considering this? What are we considering that? And that's what the lawsuit basically was filed over. I think two doctors are also involved in the lawsuit. Um, But I'm really interested in seeing how this unfolds because our abortion law down here is just really extreme, like super extreme. 
You know, I just don't think someone should have to go get blood poisoning just for you to provide them service. Like, that is risking their health. No, absolutely. It seems preposterous that you can have doctors saying, we know this is going to become life-threatening, but mm-hmm. we have to wait until your life is actually threatened before we can do anything. Mm-hmm. Scary. It's, yeah, I, I just, I don't even know, like, why they thought this was okay. I mean, the reason why they thought it's okay is because majority of the state and majority of the people who are in the legislature think that abortion is murder. Like, that's yes, what they think. Yeah. That's what they believe. And mm-hmm. so therefore it should be banned. And I think the reality of it is that it is much more nuanced than that. And mm-hmm. the reality of it is that, you know, there is a lot of strong faith perspectives involved, but not mm-hmm. every faith, not every religion believes in this. You know, when uh, when the Dobbs decision was initially leaked, uh, major Jewish groups all across the country put out press releases noting that uh, under Judaism, you know, abortion is not considered murder. A fetus is not considered alive. And the highest, mm-hmm. uh, most important thing is protecting the life of a mother, um, including mental and physical health. And mm-hmm. then not for a second hesitate to do what it takes to make sure that she is healthy um, when she's pregnant. You know, mm-hmm. and if that involves an abortion, so be it. And, you know, there is an fascinating uh, note put out by the Orthodox community, by the uh, Union of Orthodox Synagogues, saying that uh, they are not pro-choice. They do not think any of this is a choice. They think that if a mother's uh, health is at risk, you have to get an abortion. It is Mm -hmm. mandated. Like, this is 100% necessary. On the other hand, if her life is not at risk, you're not allowed to get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's just showing that there's a whole lot more perspectives in the state of Texas than what is being imposed upon us by the legislature. Mm-hmm. And my thing is, I, the way I look at it is that if a mother gets to the point like this one where she has blood poisoning and let's say she just ends up getting sicker and sicker and sicker, at that point, she may die. So either way, it, it's murder. Because I, I look at it like if you didn't save her life when you knew that you could have, it's still the same thing if that's what is that if that's the principle that you're going off of, basically. Um, so... I, I hope that they go somewhere with this fight. I don't know how well it's going to go with Texas courts because it's Texas. But, yeah, definitely something to pay attention to. So let's move on to the most overlooked story. Evan, what was overlooked for you this week? I think the most overlooked story this week is the fact that for the second year in a row, rice farmers in Texas are not getting any water from the Colorado River. Hmm. Now, the Colorado River has many big reservoirs built along it. Uh, Thank you, New Deal. Uh, And those uh, reservoirs have been used to make sure that a lot of the rice farmers downriver, closer to the coast, have the water they need to grow rice. But as Mm -hmm. cities in the hill country have been growing bigger and bigger, uh, demands for water have increased. And we're also in the middle of a bit of a drought. And so for the second year, these rice farmers don't have any water. You know, they could rely a little bit on the groundwater that they do have. But the fact of the matter is we are seeing the end of days for Houston's rice farmers and or for Texas mm. rice farmers. Uh, and I always find it to be fascinating that you see a lot of fights about rural versus urban on cultural issues, that mm-hmm. the representation, that the advocacy for rural Texas comes through cultural issues. But the actual material interests of rural Texas, the actual interests of farmers in our state, are not being advocated for. They're not being protected. We're going to mm-hmm. see an entire way of life die out because of our inability to provide water, something so critical as water. 
So what what's causing this? Like, why is it not being provided? Uh, well, one, just hasn't been enough rain. Okay. Two, more demand from the cities in the hill country along the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three, there is another reservoir that's being built, but it's not up and operating yet. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of some things are just out of control because they're like involving with just nature and naturally getting rain and things like that. But yeah, that is actually scary. Mm-hmm. A whole industry dying out that that's going to be a devastating thing for us, like seriously, a devastating thing, especially with grocery prices already going up. It's like, what's next? You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. And we need to start investing in infrastructure we need to make sure we have the water, but also mm-hmm. the efficiency standards we need to make sure we're not wasting water. And mm-hmm. all of it's going to require action from the state government. You see them talking a lot about water? No, not at you all. You see them up there no. banging the podium over water? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. This should be one of the most important issues. If you are you know, care about a red state and red state interests, you should be worrying about water. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some critical bills making their way through the legislature to create uh, rotating funds to fund water infrastructure. But okay. you really wish that the people who can get the megaphones, who can get in front of cameras would talk about this, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Okay, Shiam, what about you? What was your Overlook story this week? My Overlook story is uh, a continuation of a story you guys covered last week, um, which is, as listeners may remember, um, someone who volunteers with Food Not Bombs was given a citation. Mm-hmm. The backstory on that is that there's a charitable feeding ordinance that was passed in 2012 under Mayor Anise Parker, which uh, like limits how people can like share food in public. Um, And so this week, uh, the person who got issued a a citation has a lawyer and they filed actually a federal lawsuit. And the argument, the idea is that it's actually protected first, first amendment, like free speech to be able to share food Mm. with whoever you want when, when you want. Oh, Wow. I never thought about it like that. When we talked about it last week, I was kind of like seeing both sides, basically, because Evan mentioned that basically you can't give food to over five people, I think. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's the law. And they have to get permission from the property owner, whether it's public property or private property. Okay. Yeah. So I I saw that understanding it just because um, they were trying to talk about keeping the city clean and, you know, people not cleaning up after themselves after they do these types of things. But it's also, you know, the fact that it's somebody just trying to do something nice for the community and they're being fined and ticketed and now they have to do a lawsuit about it. Like, yeah, it's kind of it's it's getting extreme, you know, I mean, on one hand, they could work with the city and say, okay, how do we get the permit? Where can we go? How can all this work together? And I've heard from the city that they want to do that. But Food Not Bombs, I think, has a philosophical opposition to that. Yeah, (laughs) they're not trying to comply all the way. But I I get their side of it. I understand their thought process. Like, I'm, you know, just trying to be a good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I completely get it. Um, My Overlook story was something that people probably have heard about, but I just wanted to bring more light to. Um, There was two 13-year-old twin brothers who went missing this past Sunday while they were swimming by Pleasure Pier in Galveston. And this week, one of the bodies was found. Um, It was around 2 a.m. when emergency responders pulled the body from the water. Um, It was near 28th Street. And it was confirmed to be one of the twin brothers named Eduardo Perez, 
who was a part of a Honduran family that just moved to the country less than a month ago. And that's the part of the story that just really like broke my heart. Like the whole thing is really sad, but the fact that you just got here with, I'm pretty sure the intentions of starting a new life and it was just taken away at such a young age um, is horrible. Now his brother is still out there. They have not found him and they have not identified him either, you know, just for safety of the family and, you know, his age. But yeah, this story was just something that was kind of like heartbreaking to me pretty much. I saw that story too. And then, and it also broke my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move to something happier. Um, Evan, what was your moment of joy? My moment of joy this week is that it is Sarah week. We did it. We still got it. Houston still has that energy (laughs) mojo. You know, experts from around the world are in our city to talk about oil and gas and solar and wind and geothermal and everything going on in the world. And Mm -hmm. every year I'm always worried, is this going to be the last one? Is this the last one before the big final collapse? Before Houston really no longer is the energy of the capital of the world. But every time we still have Sarah Week, every time we still have the Offshore Technology Conference, my heart grows. (laughs) We love that. We love to see it. (laughs) Okay, Shiam, what about you? What was your moment of joy? My joy this week came from the natural environment in Houston. Um, We had a few days of spring and it's always spring for me in Houston when meadow garlic and blackberries are blooming. Um, (laughs) Especially, especially there's a ton of meadow garlic in Sugarland and that looks kind of weird. It looks like a gobstopper with little flowers coming out of it. Um, (laughs) And, and that's actually what got me on the path to studying, uh, you know, the natural sciences. Um, so yeah, we, the weather has been nice in Houston and that's been bringing me joy. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny about that is that it's not actually spring yet, but it's spring for Houston. If that makes sense, it's spring for Houston because by the time spring actually starts, it's probably going to be hot, like super hot. It's going to be, you know, like the next couple of weeks, pretty sure it's going to be a summer almost. (laughs) So, oh yeah, it's too warm. It's too warm out there. It needs to cool off a little bit. Like slow your roll. Yes, it like it comes in for a couple weeks, and then the next thing you know, it's just entirely too hot. So we have to enjoy mm-hmm. it while we have the time to enjoy it. So yeah, it's been beautiful for sure. Uh, my moment of joy is that we have one of the youngest district judges in the state. She's a Sugarland native, and she's making history because she's also the first Black woman on the bench in the district. Her name is Catherine Thomas, and she's only 30 years old. And also, what else is really cool about her is that she studied political science and pre-law at Spelman, which is a college in Atlanta, predominantly Black. And she also interned for the Obama administration. So I think this woman is just amazing. And yesterday, or no, Wednesday, was International Women's Day. And I just feel like we should just celebrate her. I just wanted to highlight her because it made me happy to see that. Oh my God, the listeners can't see, but I have a big smile on my face. I am happy yeah, to hear she about does. this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's smiling ear to ear, y'all. <laughs> no, it's really, it's, it's really fascinating news because for a long time, there's been conversation about changing the way that Texas selects its judges, particularly in a place like Harris Mm -hmm. County, where you have so many judgeships. You go on on the ballot, there's like 70 races, you don't know anything about any of them. 
And as partisan mm-hmm. alignment, is this really the best way for us to get the best judges? At the same time, if you had some type of appointment system, you would never get candidates like this. And and I think mm-hmm. that it should have people questioning uh, some of the upsides of elected judges that I think get ignored. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I'm just happy that, you know, we got one in the, in there and like, you mm-hmm. know, 30 years old and she's doing it. Like, that's amazing. I'm still smiling ear to ear. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for inviting us on to go over the news, Carly. Yes, it has been great. Thank you both for being on CityCast today. Right. Talk to Thank you. Later. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. That was our contributors, Sheen Gallian and Evan Mintz. That's all that we have for you this week at CityCast Houston. Our lead producer is Dina Kispa. Our producers are me, Carleon Jones, and AK Al Moment. Our newsletter writer is Brooke Lewis, and our music is by All the Kimonos. We had some extra help this week from roving producer Lizzie Goldsmith. And if you enjoyed the show, we want to tell you that you should tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend because we'll be back on Monday with another round of amazing shows. Until then, have a wonderful weekend, and I'll see you then. I was riding in an Uber on Wednesday and the Uber driver was listening on the radio and the radio DJ brought up, oh, it's International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day. And then slammed right into Fight Song by Katy Perry. And I just like had an out of body experience. Oh. Is that the one that's like, you held me down, but I got up. Is it? Is it that song? This is my fight song. Oh, uh, okay. uh, <laughs> that one. Okay, okay, okay. I'm mixing up my Katy Perry's. Oh, yeah. <laughs>